Turn your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 1, okay? No, I'm serious. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We are going to do sort of a major review today, okay? And uh, we'll pick things back up next week. It's been a while, so we want to kind of come on the same page. And what I want to do is as we go through Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, 11 or so, we will pick up on the major themes that we talked about, okay? I'm not going to preach the same sermon, don't worry, that I preached on. I want to pick up on major themes in the book of Acts as we now head towards this finish line, you know, sometime next year for uh, finishing the book of Acts. So uh, while you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. I wanted to share this with you because Acts chapter 1, we're talking about church without walls and and living missional lives and having our lives count and matter for something. And uh, uh, I got... I got this email, Jenny and I got this email from uh, Parkers, our son's teacher, preschool teacher. And uh, I, I got this email, I said, that's what I'm talking about. Parker is, is learning what it means to live missionally. Okay, he's four and a half. <laughs> this is his teacher. Hi, Jenny. I'm not sure if Parker told you or not, but I partnered him up with Ethan, who was the new boy today. I asked him to please help him feel comfortable in the room since he's new. It was the cutest thing. Parker held his hand and walked him around the room. (laughs) He helped him check out a book, write in his journal, flip his name, and play in centers. When we went outside, Ethan looked uh, a little sad at first since everyone was playing with one another. But at that very moment, Parker went right up to him and said, Come on, let's play. And Ethan had a huge smile on his face all day. And it's all because of Parker. He is such a great friend. See you tomorrow. Isn't that cool? And I'm just showing off my kid, but you know what I'm saying? It's still, it's still, I, it's still so, I, you know, Jenna, it just warmed my heart. I said, you know, I, uh, he gets it way more than I do sometimes. This is, this is what I'm saying. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. I'm gonna, I don't have slides prepared. We're not going to actually do slides, sermon points, because I need you to guys pay attention. But here's what I want you to do. If you miss a point and you're taking notes, just feel free to go, repeat that again. And I'll just go ahead and repeat that again, okay? What do we learn from Book of Acts right in the opening verses? Here it is, you guys. The primary actor in the Book of Acts is who? Is God. The primary actor in the book of Acts is God. This is a book about what God is doing. Mission is about what God is doing in the world today. Now, that's very important because we've spent a ton of time talking about the importance of the church. The church to gather people of God. And that's incredibly important and it's true. But let's make sure that we get the horse before the cart. And that is the primary actor in the book of Acts is not the church. The primary actor in the book of Acts is who? Is God. The book of Acts talks about, and it's every page, the God of the Bible who's been at work from the very beginning of time to resume and restore all of creation and put it back together. The main character in the book of Acts is God. The same God that appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and said, I'm going to bless all the nations through you is the same God that we find in every page, every verse, every chapter of the book of Acts working and moving and guiding. Some of you are familiar with the doctrine of Missio Dei, the sending of God, the sent one. As the primary theme in this book, it talks about a God who through Christ takes the initiative to redeem his creation. God's heartbeat is for mission. God's heartbeat is for mission. Mission exists because we serve a God who is missional. Who is missional. Regardless of the chapter, what we're talking about, as we continue Acts chapter sort of part two, there's an overriding theme under sort of the main sort of the passage in the text and specific story. And that is, regardless of what's going on, the author Luke tells us God is at work. God is ever present. God is doing things. Let me give you an example. 
Peter is preaching right after Pentecost in Acts 2. And in verse 22, this is what he said. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And with you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, in the book of Acts, we see the apostles confirming and affirming even, even the death of Christ. And certainly the resurrection of Christ is something that God is doing. God is at work. God is moving. In every page of Acts, even when it seems as though God is nowhere to be found, even tragic events, even pointless events, there's a lot of suffering and persecution in the book of Acts. A lot of beatings, a lot of, a lot of floggings, a lot of imprisonment, and a lot of death of godly men and women. Even then, even then, God is at work. We're going to find this theme in the second half. God's silence is not absence. And God's hiddenness is not abandonment. God is at work. God is at work. God is at work. Encouragement. Huge encouragement. One, you and I can move in mission with confidence. Amen? When God sends us in mission, he doesn't send us alone. God is already at work. God is already at work. He's already at work in the life of that coworker of yours. God is already at work in that student down your dorm. God is already at work in your family member. God is already at work in that coffee shop in the reverse. God is already at work. Should we choose to see through the eyes of faith? God does not send us out in mission alone. God is already at work. He is already ushered in the kingdom of God, and he asks us to join him on that. But, you know, we don't believe it. Let me give you an example. We, we love creating this distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. What do I mean? Why is it that we tend to think that when we're sharing the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, that it's the first time that God is having a conversation with them. When we share the gospel with somebody, why do we assume that it's the first time God is having a conversation with them instead of thinking and believing that God has already at work in that person's life? He is speaking. He is wooing. He is drawing. You're tracking so far. That's why we use language like, we need to take Jesus to the world. Hello, take Jesus as if he hasn't already been at work in the world. For thousands of years. He's already at work. He's already moving. He's already working. We don't take Jesus to anybody. You know what we do? We are prophets of the invisible God. And all we're doing is revealing this God who is at work in their lives and helping them to see God's wooing you. God, yeah, look, come on, come on. Let's think about our personal experiences. Why every single one of us in here Every single one of us in here, when we think about our conversion experience, how common is testimony? You know, I thought I was searching for God. I thought I was seeking for God. And then at some point we recognize, but we always do, that if we were seeking for God, searching for God. Because why? God was seeking after us. God was searching after us. If you're not a Christian here today, I've got great news for you. Because if you're searching for God and seeking for God, don't search with anxiety, you know? Like, oh, I don't know if I'll find him. I don't know if I'll seek him. The only reason why you're anxious is because you're giving yourself too much credit. You're not capable of missing God. You're not capable of aching for God, longing for God, unless God was first longing and seeking and searching you. So remember this principle also as we head towards Acts chapter, the second half. A sense of God's absence is a sign of his presence. A sense of God's absence is a sign of God's presence, that God is at work in you. One last thing before we move on. We're a church planting church. We want to plant 10 more churches in five years. No, I'm sorry. I got that backwards. <laughs> Ten more churches in five years. We better get going. <laughs> what if, 
want to plant five more churches in 10 years. You could tell I thought a lot about this, right? Okay. Five more churches in 10 years. And I've said this all along. We want to be a church planting church throughout the community of Chicago. And you will never, ever, ever hear these words come out of our mouths. We are going into that community to take Jesus into that community because that community needs Jesus. Jesus is already there at work. Amen? All right. Second thing that this two verses show us as we, again, major summary, is that church is in reality continuing what Jesus began to do. The church is in reality continuing what Jesus began to do. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and it acts, it chronicles what Jesus is continuing to do. Now, you guys, check this out. If pe- most people in church think like this. Most people in church think uh, mission is an instrument of the church. Most people think mission is the instrument, is the way that churches grow, right? We do mission in order to grow the church. But, but, but if it's true that God is already a God of mission, if it's true that God has already been in mission, if it's true that God is already at work, then it's more correct not, not, to, say, not to say the church has a mission, but the mission of God has a church. Does that make sense? We like to say the church has a mission. What we mean normally is the mission is the way we grow the church. It's an instrument of, of, of growth. But what in fact the Bible says is that, that the mission of God has a church. A church that God is using. A church, the group of God's people, tangible expression of God's people, uh, uh, Christ on earth. That the mission of God has a church. And that changes things. One way. We don't say that the local church is the hope of the world. We say Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Right? Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. The Bible clearly lays out the mission of the church. God's already at work. He's been at work. He asks us to join him. It gives us a clear guideline, clear directive, a clear goal. Every church on the face of the earth needs to have at its core this mission statement. We exist in some form or another to do what Jesus did, to say what Jesus said, to fulfill what Jesus fulfilled. That's the mission of the church. We have an identity and a mission is to be Jesus. That's what we like to say around here. If you're new, that the, that the church doesn't exist for us, but we are the church and we exist for the world. The goal of our church, if you're checking us out, is not to feed you. I'll say this one more time. Object of our preaching ministry, myself included, is not to feed you. Too many Christians are spiritual bulimics. They starve themselves all week and then expect to gorge on Sundays. Our job is not to feed you, church. Our job is to make you hungry and teach you to feed yourself. Somebody goes, well, but, but in John chapter 20, Jesus said to Peter, go feed my sheep. Uh, Jesus meant, Peter, go preach and teach to the unbelievers, not believers. How do we know? Because in response to Jesus' command, Peter goes teaching and preaching among who? Unbelievers. And I thought about this too. If it's true that we are to be the visible, tangible expression of Jesus on earth and that people ought to see Jesus by looking at the church, because that's why we exist, uh, do we really need the name church at the end of new community? Shouldn't people just know by just looking at us? Does that make sense? You know, it's not that I'm ashamed of us being called New Community Covenant Church. It's just that something's wrong if we have to tell people we're a church, we're a church, we're a church. You know, we, we, I don't go around and saying, hi, I'm Peter, the human. <laughs> I know some of y'all go, he from another planet sometimes. No, me being human is obvious. It needs no explanation. Acts chapter 11 It says that the Christians, first Christians, didn't call themselves Christians. They didn't go around saying, Christians, we're Christians. No, the outside world looked at them and called them Christians. Nowadays, we call ourselves Christians, and the world calls us hypocrites. Why do we exist? 
to be the physical, tangible expression of Christ here on earth. Amen? Verse 3. Let's keep going. After this suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was still alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here's another big theme. The mission of God is work empowered by God's Spirit. The mission of God is work empowered by God's Spirit. You guys, will you just pause for a moment and think about this with me, okay? So Jesus is given the mission of his heavenly father. But in order for Jesus to carry out the mission of the heavenly father, the gospel writers make it absolutely clear that he needed the filling and the empowering and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach, to preach, to heal, and to serve. The work that God called Jesus Christ to do on earth It was impossible. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And it was the anointing and the filling and the powering of the Holy Spirit that enables the Son of God to do the mission of God. Now, check this out. Jesus then comes to us and says, here's why I need you to wait for the gift my Father promised. He says that the same... (laughs) This is one of those things, you just hear it, and it just goes one ear out the other, but I want you to think. Jesus Christ says, the same Holy Spirit that descended on me in Jordan River and empowered and filled and anointed me, the same Holy Spirit is now invading your life. To proclaim and to heal and to serve and to teach. That same Holy Spirit Spirit that anoints and empowers Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ says is coming into your life right now to do the mission of God. I just have a simple question for all of us, and that is, if the Son of God felt it necessary to be empowered and filled by the Spirit to overcome temptation, to obey the Father, and to be about the mission of God, where would we I mean, does it it make sense? I mean, if we really got that, if we really got that, it would both exhilarate me and terrify me. It would exhilarate me because I would recognize nothing is impossible in the power of the Spirit. But at the same time, I look at how I approach ministry, how I approach my relationship with my wife, I approach how I, you know, I examine my obedience to the Father, I examine all these areas of my life, and I ask myself, how consciously and daily and intentionally am I on my need for the utter dependence of the filling of the Spirit? I mean, seriously, folks. You guys don't see me before the service because I am literally huddled up in a cave like in this dungeon in this church. Like y'all don't want to go there because it's scary. It's like you can't go any higher. And I lock the door and I'm on my face before God because I say, God, anything that I do today is going to be absolutely ineffective. I need your spirit from on high. I need your spirit from on high. I need your spirit from on high. How are you doing? How am I doing? To Jesus, more urgent that the mission at this time was having the right equipment to carry out the mission. Okay. You guys, I want to teach a little bit here. Is that okay? Because I want to kind of take a step back. And I I want you guys to kind of, I want us to kind of, kind of pause for a moment. And and, and I want us to kind of spend a little bit of time thinking about something that may seem counterintuitive. The spirit-filled life is not just active, but the spirit-filled life is also contemplative. When we talk about the spirit-filled life, we're not just talking about active, but we're talking about contemplative. What do I mean? Luke chapter 3, verse 21. This is what it says. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son in whom I love, with you I am well pleased. 
So here's, here's what's happening. Jesus is about to launch on his public ministry. And what happens? He is anointed and filled by the Spirit. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, you're my beloved son. And then right away in Luke chapter 4, it says, verse 1, Jesus then, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he is tempted, for 40 days he fasts, for 40 days he prays, for 40 days he goes through character development. 40 days. Why is this critical? When we think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what do we normally think of? When we think of the Spirit-filled life, here's what we normally think of. We think of active ministry. We think of being filled by the Spirit to heal and to preach and to witness and to serve. But notice that the Holy Spirit, and the Bible is so clear on this, is manifested on Jesus as he is doing contemplative ministry. Contemplative ministry. Before Jesus begins his public ministry, he spends his time in contemplative ministry. He is anointed, and then he gives time to, to, to trial and to prayer and to fasting. Uh, more and more, you guys, in this upcoming year, you're going to hear me talk about spiritual disciplines. I know that for a lot of us, when we hear the word spiritual disciplines, like, yeah religion, and so on. Spiritual disciplines, here's why. Spiritual disciplines are varying ways that God works in our lives to mold us to be more like him. And I say this in our church, when I look at good athletes and great musicians and Christians, what, what they have in common is, is, is discipline. And, and by the way, I find it interesting that the word discipline shares the same root as the word disciple. To be a disciple of Christ is to live a disciplined lifestyle patterned after the example of Jesus as he is empowered by the Spirit. And when it comes to spiritual disciplines, they fall into sort of two broad categories. There's the contemplative disciplines and then the active disciplines. Here's what I mean. Contemplative disciplines, if you're taking notes, are about being. The active disciplines are about doing. Contemplative spiritual disciplines slow us down to connect with God. Active disciplines enable us to get busy and to connect with others. The contemplative disciplines focus on the world of ideas, and the active disciplines focus on the world of projects. Now, as soon as you hear that, all of you are sitting there going, you know what? The way I'm wired up kind of falls into one or the other, right? Some of us are more of the contemplative types, and some of us are more of the active types. That's why for the contemplatives in here, you're energized by quiet, rest, solitude, and Sabbath. And the activists in here are energized by noise, projects, community, and chaos. But here's the thing that I want you to know. We need both. We need both. Both are... This is the thing I want to tell you. Both, the Bible says, is empowered by the Spirit. Both is a part of living a Spirit-filled life. It's not we do contemplation on our own and all of a sudden we're ready and God fills us with the Spirit to do active ministry. Contemplation and contemplative disciplines are one of the avenues in which the Holy Spirit comes powerfully and works in us. We need to do both. Both. Having said that, let me just uh, real quickly talk to the activists in this room. How many of y'all are activists? Okay, maybe we don't need to talk to the activists in this room. Let me just, just real quickly, those of you... I feel like you've been called into ministry. You've been called into doing something for God. But you're in the strange season of sort of, whoa, nothing's happening. No doors are being opened. I just kind of feel like I'm in this unique place of God just doing nothing. I want you to know that the same thing happened to Jesus. Jesus is taken by God. And he goes through a time of preparation, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, contemplative preparation where he fasts, he prays. And, 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 and the thing that we need to recognize is please, please, please do not be inactive during this season. Contemplative disciplines is aggressive, it's intentional, 
It's hard. It's wrestling with God. God is preparing you. God is opening doors for you eventually, but he has gifted you this season to to seek him. He wants to meet you. Silence always precedes preaching. Contemplation always precedes action. Let's go on. Verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. (laughs) I've said this before. I think Jesus is awfully, awfully nice in verse 7. Because when they say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were saying two things, right? One, they were way off. Number one, they're thinking that what God is going to do is about restoring an ethnic, cultural-specific group. And we know throughout the book of Acts that Jesus Christ, through his spirit, constantly breaks that mentality and breaks that barrier. As he says, the gospel is for all cultures. The gospel is for all people. The gospel is for everyone, not just you. And secondly, Jesus, when they said, When they said, are you going to restore the the kingdom to Israel? They're still expecting a political, earthly kingdom. A nation, state, if you will, that was going to fulfill God's plan to restore the world. And they're totally missing. I don't know how after 40 days of spending with Jesus, what God was going to do. I need to vent this morning. Can I vent? Say, go ahead, Peter, vent. Okay, I need to vent this morning, okay? Okay. Because maybe I need to stop watching news, you know, but it is absolutely, absolutely frustrating me to no end that we still have parts of a Christian community that still has put our hopes and our dreams in this country becoming a Christian nation. I don't know what to do when I go to a coffee shop. And the barista that I've been spending time with and sharing with says to me, did you, hear about the, did you hear about that pastor that actually prayed that President Obama would die? Did you hear about that? And, and I go, yeah. I, it's hard for me when there's still, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know I'm preaching to the choir. So that's why I said I need to vent. It's hard for me when there are folks who say, in order for this country, this nation to move forward, it, God, if we have the right person in the office, then everything will be okay. Can I just say this? Our hope is not a Christian nation, but a Christ-saturated universe. Amen? Our hope is not Christianity. Our hope is Christ. Our hope is not in kings and princes and presidents. Our hope is the one who rose from the dead and reigns today. Y'all can clap if you want to. That's our hope. And I'm frustrated. Can I vent? I'm frustrated because the fear-mongering, you know, has affected Christian communities. We're afraid. We're afraid that public schools will ruin our children. We're afraid that, 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 that the gay community will ruin our families. We're afraid that a Democrat will ruin this country. We're afraid that liberals will ruin our neighborhoods. We're afraid and we're living in fear. Why are we living in fear? Have you not heard that Jesus Christ, I don't know, died and rose again and conquered sin, death? And Satan once and for all. By the way, the reason why I think there's so much fear going on, Christian community, I'm just picking on us. Christian community is because we want to protect our families, you know, and safety is a good thing. But they aren't biblical values. Neither is comfort. Or have you not read the New Testament? Look, if you're involved in politics, you know, the Max Keekers of this world, who's sitting there going, oh, I, I feel like you're saying don't be involved in politics. Let me say this once and for all. Be involved in politics. Get involved in using whatever means necessary to advance the cause of Christ. Max, do you hear me? I said it once. Don't email me, okay? It's important. It's important. It's important. It's important. However, we cannot recapture or capture people's imagination for Christ by illegalizing sin. It hasn't worked in history, and it won't work now. And by the way, I'm still venting. By the way, by the way, 
I'm also curious, you know. I'm also curious. Why? You know, Christians, it is the height of weirdness for me that we Christians expect non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus, to behave like they do. It is also weirdness to me that we expect people who don't know Jesus to behave like they do when we don't behave like we know Jesus. You know, as long as Christians continue to, you know, contribute to divorce statistics and porn industry and, you know, accept more acceptable sins like gluttony, greed, and gossip, we have no business telling this world how to live. None. Judgment begins with the house of God. We don't need to tell the world to repent. The church in America needs to repent. I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Just a couple more things and then I'm done. What this has done is this mangled mission. It is mangled mission. It has made us picketers and politicos. It has made us extremists and sensationalists. It has taken relationship completely out of mission. And all we want to do is maneuver and argue. I'm sorry, the last time I checked, nobody was legally or argumentatively or culturally one for the kingdom. But millions have been served and loved into the kingdom. Dying for somebody says a whole lot more than debating them. Oh, I ain't done yet, y'all. I got one more thing I want to say. Jesus knew that heart change did not come through political power, cultural pressure. That's why he was absolutely and keenly disinterested in those things. It's about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Amen? Verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is sort of the key verse we've been essentially unpacking for the last year. The gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that we haven't just been saved from something, but we have been saved for something. Man, if you're looking for a verse that you can meditate on that will absolutely just blow you and encourage you, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, here's what Paul says. You are his workmanship, created by God for good works that he prepared in advance for you to walk in. Do you know what that means? Byron, do you know what that means? That means that everything in your life, everything in my life, the good, the bad, the successes, the talents, the gifts, Everything in our lives, everything, our, 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 our culture, our ethnic heritage, everything in our lives, our age, our life experiences, everything in our lives, everything, all things, that those things, God is somehow going to work in such a way that he's preparing us for a mission that only you can do, that nobody else on this face of the earth can do. That God has uniquely designed you and done something in your life in such a way that there is a mission for you to do that nobody else now, if that doesn't make you feel significant, I don't know what would. The mission of God that's given to us says that we have not just been saved from something, but saved for something, and God has been at work. And the degree to which we believe that, you guys, the degree to which you and I, and you're sitting here this morning, you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, my life is stinks, my life is not going well, I've got these issues here, I've got these questions over here, I've got all kinds of things that are going on. I'm telling you right now, those things, those things, and the answers to those things is, is, is found in this critical question that we need to ask, and that is, has God given me a mission so that when I wake up tomorrow morning, when I wake up tomorrow morning and I snooze and I wake up tomorrow morning 10 minutes later and get in the shower and whatever I do, I walk out those doors, that the mission of God says that there is a person that God has prepared for me to talk to. There's a person that God has prepared for me to be Jesus to. There are things that God has set for me and prepare for me tomorrow that nobody else can do but me. And that God has orchestrated my life in such a way that he has that kind of an amazing mission for me. And Satan so hates this 
Satan so hates this that he is at work nonstop to derail you from the mission of God. And he's going to use guilt. He's going to use apathy. He's going to use life circumstances. He is going to use, use, use other people. He's going to use any means necessary to derail you from the mission of God because he knows that the most dangerous Christian in the hands of God is somebody who recognizes and gets, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I have a mission from God. And I'm going to go after it. And the least dangerous Christian is not somebody who is just an outright sin, but the least dangerous Christian is somebody who fails to recognize that God is his mission for them that only they can fulfill. And it's not about his kingdom and his righteousness first. Um, I want to read you guys this email that I, that I got from a person in our church that just... This is, this is the kind of encouragement that gets me to continue to do what I do. It says, Pastor Peter, last night I listened again to the podcast of the Converted Part 1 sermon and it made me cry just like when I heard it live. I thank God for coming to get me. I thank God for showing me the way back to Christ. This is so much more than what I asked for when I asked him to help me get sober. There's no way I would have guessed it would happen. Praise God. We didn't have time to pray together Sunday, but sometime during the week, could you please pray for me as God continues to reveal ways for me to gain more knowledge about recovery ministries? There are more than one in the Christian community. I'm discovering that there are definite biblical origins for AA and 12-step programs. And I'm seeking to better understand the connection between 12 steps and the Christian experience. And I feel that God is calling me to do this. Don't know where it will lead, but I'm ready to go. And then listen to this. I mentioned that I am young because I have a future. Last year, there were many days when I truly didn't care if I lived or I died. When I got sober, I reviewed the last 30 years of my life. And I became aware that this was a recurring feeling throughout my teens and my adult life. Now what? I thought. God answered that I'm still here for a reason. To help others. And now I have a bright future. I would not have this perspective if I had not gotten so lost. And I thank God for that experience. I believe his will is for me to use that experience to help others. Not only to get sober, but to help them find the future that God intends for them. Don't you love that? He is a man who gets up in the morning and he says, there's a mission for my life. There's a mission for my life. Here's a man who looks back at 30 years of his experience and he says, all the things, even the bad things, even the crappy things, even the stanky things, even the, even the things that were part of just hurt and pain, even those things God will somehow use so that I'm at this place in this moment. And we need to celebrate more folks like this. Do you have anything to live for? Do you have anything to lay down your life for? Is there anything that's worth giving your life to? When you get up tomorrow morning, you say, my greatest fear today and this week is not that I would fail. My greatest fear should be that I would succeed at something in life that really does not matter. Do you have something to give your life for? To lay down your life for. Something that gets you up in the morning tomorrow and says, today I live by his grace and today I pour out my life for his grace. If you don't have that, get alone with God and say, God, show me, show me, show me. And God will. As we think of mission, one of the things that I uh, 
I began to reflect on during my break is, is that oftentimes when we think of mission, you guys, we think either or instead of both and. What do I mean? When we think, when we think mission, do you notice a lot of times we think about even what I just shared, which is very legitimate, you know, this one man or that one woman and what they're doing in their lives. But the Bible says that mission is both and, and there's three both ands we'll quickly cover. One, it's both me and we. Everybody say me and we. Me and we. One more time. Me and we. Mission of God is not just about me and what I do, but this text tells us mission of God is about us. You notice in verse 8, the you will receive power. The word you is plural, not singular. God is talking to the corporate body at large. So we begin to think about, as we go through the second half of Acts, you guys, what does it mean for us to be corporate witnesses for Christ? Um, We saw, when we initially studied the book of Acts early on, the unbelievable community life of the early church, remember? There's this incredible blueprint for how community should be, a local church community. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they were together. And we talked about how them being together, they were together. It wasn't just about something they did, like they just met together. They were together. It was a a description of, of their mode of existence. This group of people somehow entered into this new mode of existence where the only way to describe who they were is that they were together. They didn't just meet. They were together. They, they were together. They let their whole lives, their time, their energy, their resources, their homes, everything, their whole lives come in contact with the whole lives of others. They, they, they were together. And it's just an incredibly powerful picture. But I thought about this, you guys, as I prepared this week's sermon. The most dangerous thing that we can do, the most dangerous thing that we can do is listen. Because we focus so much about what it means for us to be diverse churches together. The most dangerous thing we can do is to stop at being together and forget that there's a mission for us. Do you hear me? It's easy for us to stop at being together. And that's hard work. It takes a lot. And the spirit of God needs to be at work. But it's easy for us to say we are together. We're being together. Isn't this great? And stop there. The early church however, existed with this dynamic tension. Here it is. They were consolidating and expanding. They were consolidating and expanding. They were together. Daily people were being added to their number. They were together, and they were daily being added together. The two biblical images that I love that describes the church is the body of Christ consolidating and the army of God expanding. The body of Christ and the army of God. The reason why this is critical for us, Michael, remind me to say this a lot this year. Healthy biblical community flows out of cause, not the other way around. Healthy community flows out of cause. Healthy community flows out of not the other way. That is, healthy community flows out of a group of people saying, this is what we are about together. And that's going to bring us together. Do you know what I said? When Jesus Christ said, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, there was not an offer of community. There was not, it is an offer of what? Joining him in the cause of advancing the kingdom. But the cool thing is, when they joined together for the cause of the kingdom, they found community like never before. The cause of Christ brings us together. Look, we got no shot of being a healthy community. Look around this room. I like kimchi. Some of y'all hate kimchi. I love classical music and I can't stand rap. I dress like this. My wife this morning goes, it ain't St. Patrick's Day. Why you gotta, you know, it's like a low blow, right? We have so many differences in this room. There are so temperament, personalities, culture, ethnicity, race, age. We have so 
so many differences. We have no shot at making a difference and impact in this world if our perspective is, can we talk about how we can be a community so that we can advance the cost? No shot. But if we came together and said, we are about the cost of Christ, of advancing his kingdom, how can we do this together? Then we will find community. Amen? You know, one of the things about dying churches when I talk to these pastors, they say, you know, we're dying, but the fellowship is great. And I say this, I, I'm serious, I say this, I, I say, fellowship is great. Well, biblical word for fellowship wasn't just about what, uh, biblical fellowship was added to their number daily. You know? It's kind of like walking in on two people making out. It's intimate, but you don't particularly want to join. Some of y'all are like, that's my home church, yo. <laughs> you get the point? I'm sorry for that imagery. <laughs> if I could just erase the imagery that's in your mind right now, I would. <laughs> so what does corporate witness look like? Let's finish this. What does corporate witness look like? When we talk about not just me, but we. Well, first of all, two words. Think, everybody say reflect. Say reflect. Reflect. And then secondly, project. If we're going to be corporate witness for Christ in our world today, we need to reflect the kingdom in our corporate life together. We need to reflect in our life together the kingdom. What do I mean? You guys... If spiritual expression in our culture today, if any spiritual expression in our culture today wants to be accepted as legitimate and authentic, it must cross barriers of racism and isolation. If any church wants to be perceived as authentic and real and about Jesus, we must cross in our culture today barriers of racism and isolation. That means when we talk about reflecting the community, we ask the question of how are we doing together crossing the barriers of racism and isolation? How do we genuinely live in community? Jesus said in unmistakable terms, the world will know that you are my disciples by one thing, that you, what? Love one another. Is that happening here? I'm just asking. Can I just say one thing? It's not going to happen here unless some of us drastically change how we spend our time. Can I just say one thing? I had somebody come up to my office and say, uh, can you pray for me? I said, sure. What do you want to pray for? I said, I'm just stressed out and I just need God's peace. Okay. Tell me why. I said, well, I work 10 hours a day, Pastor Peter, and when I get home, I'm part of this club. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And the other two days, I go do this. And, and, and I said, my days are filled with 14, 16-hour days. Can you pray that God's peace would reign over me? And I looked at that person and said, I'm going to pray for you. Why? I'm not going to ask God to help you, your dysfunction. Let me just put it bluntly. This community here and our desire to be one is impossible if we have no margins in our lives. How do you expect to build genuine relationships when you've got zero margins in your life? I mean, seriously. I know we want to do it all, but it's a pipe dream if we think that we can do this without actual face-to-face, hand-to-hand, eye-to-eye contact. Reflecting community. Okay, projecting though. It's not enough for us to reflect the kingdom, the corporate witness, by, by loving each other across race, culture, class, generations. It is not enough for us just to reflect what God's kingdom and rule under God's kingdom looks like. We need to project. What do I mean? It's not enough just to win people to Christ and say, here, come join us and watch what we do. The Bible says we go out. We go out, we go out, and we work, and we say this a lot in our church, not just for the sake of people's spiritual needs, 
but we work towards bringing about God's shalom. We don't just use the city to get what we want. We serve the city. We love the city. We love our communities. And we work for its economic, its social, educational flourishing in every way. Corporate witness is not just, look at us, isn't this great? Corporate witness is projection. We move out. We are agents of the kingdom. We and we. Secondly, missional witness is both word and deed. It's both word and deed. Oh, and, and, and I, need to, I need to speak to you from my heart here a little bit. Um, the two great failures of the evangelical church today are failures of the highest magnitude. And that is a neglected proclamation of the gospel and the refused embodiment of the gospel. Our witness, you guys, falls short because we don't preach the gospel. We don't share the gospel. We don't proclaim it with conviction and regularity. And we don't give our lives. We don't spend our lives in servanthood. Gospel-driven proclamation Word and gospel-driven servanthood, deed, are both vital to the ministry of reconciliation. Amen? But too many of us are opting for one or the other, and far too many of us are actually doing neither. As we continue our series, um, and we're going to see this more in the second half of Acts, when we talk about gospel witness and mission, the proclamation of the gospel will become more and more prominent throughout the book. And we're going to be faced with a sobering question, you guys, about being in mission. And that is, how are we doing on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis as we build relationships and as we serve? How are we doing, honestly, about proclaiming the gospel, about talking about Jesus, and about sharing the gospel with boldness and conviction? Somebody always says, especially when I preach to a congregation like this, but words are cheap. We need to be consistent with our actions. Absolutely, we need to be consistent in our actions. And words used thoughtlessly and carelessly are worse than no action at all. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is, hello, news. Everybody say news. It's message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is news. There are words to it. We need to say something. It's about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how the planet turns on that essential truth. You cannot proclaim the gospel without words any more than you can the nightly news. How are we doing in terms of our proclamation? I know. tired, man. (laughs) You know, I talk to so many of you guys, and we have this thing, you know, we have this thing inside of us that says, you know, Peter, I'm praying and hoping that, you know, somehow my enthusiasm for Jesus will sort of infect them. It's like a virus or something. And people catch Jesus. Oh, look at that. (laughs) We so pray and hope. I'm serious. Am I? Is it just me? Can anybody else relate? Is it, I just, you know, I'm, I'm at Starbucks the other day. As one person is sharing about their marriage and how it's like falling apart and just pouring out their heart. Not a Christian. I'm sitting there going, inside and going, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. This person knows I'm a pastor, Christian. They're going on and on saying stuff that is completely outside the realm of God's intention for marriage. And, and the whole time I'm sitting there and and. And I had the hardest time saying to the person, you need Christ. And hoping against all hope that some other person would, you know, sort of catch on to who Jesus is. Can anybody else relate? The early church existed and struggled with this as well. You realize how many times the theme boldness is found in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 4, you guys. The apostles have just been told not to preach the gospel anymore. The council, the Jewish councils brought them up, ordered them to shut up, and said, don't do this again. So here's what's happening. Peter and John have just been told, don't ever preach the gospel again or else, right? And they're going down the streets of Jerusalem, and they're seeing their faces on posters on the walls, okay? And they go back to their community. And they say, let's pray together. And you know what they pray for? 
Listen to this. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and enable your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The miracle they asked for, they're praying together. The miracle that they asked for, God, I need this miracle in my life. The miracle they asked for is not that the posters would come down. The miracle they asked for is not that their lives would be spared from danger. The miracle that they asked for is, God, give us more boldness. We don't care whether we live or die. Give us more boldness. That's what they had the audacity to pray for. And I begin to realize boldness is a biblical word. And you know what that means? That means God defines boldness. Some of us think we're being bold, but actually we're being offensive. Boldness is something that God defines. It's something that God does. In other words, boldness is not when we want to go, I'm being bold. Boldness is up in heaven when God turns to his angel Gabriel and says, look at that, look at that. Aren't they being bold? Now, that's a miracle for many of us, isn't it? To be that bold. Aren't you thankful that God works miracles? Another image, embrace a two-fisted gospel. One fist to take out the power of the prince of the air with the incredible resurrection news that Jesus Christ has conquered Satan, sin, and death. One fist. The other fist, the other fist, to be men and women and agents of justice, justice that work for the kingdom and bring it about shalom in our city, in our communities, and across the globe. Two-fisted gospel. Preach the word. Be Jesus. Preach Jesus. Be Jesus. Be both. Not one or the other. Both. Both. And lastly, let me finish with this. Let me finish with this. It's not just me, but we, me and we, it's not, just word and, it's not just word or deed, but both word and deed. It's not just here or there, but both here and there. What do I mean? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Do you think of what you do day in and day out as mission? Do you think of what you do day in and day out as mission? When you think of mission, instead of thinking overseas and sharing the gospel and digging up wells and addressing AIDS crisis, which are an incredible part of being a mission, I'm asking many of you who will not probably get opportunities to do that, do you think of what you do when you get up every single day and you go in and punch the clock? Do you think of what you do for work as mission? I, I, know, I know who I pastor. I know our church context. And I want to end this sermon, listen, I want to end this sermon, not by charging you to go preach the gospel, share the gospel. I actually want to do something that's counterintuitive. I want to tell you, bankers, nurses, doctors, lawyers, attorneys, janitors, students, I want to tell you that being on mission is that what you do every single day, five days a week is mission. I I want to leave you with that, okay? And how I'm going to do that, well, here's how I'm going to do it. Because I know that the thought of getting up tomorrow morning and going to your work just makes you want to vomit. So I'm going to, so I'm going to tell, I know, I know, Thaddeus, I know our church. I want to, I want to try and tell you this. You know, when we look at the Bible, the Bible says this. The Bible says that, 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 that when sin entered the world, our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with God was fractured. And the way that we go about healing that is we go about sharing the gospel and preaching the news of Christ. That's my job. I say, come, here's what God has done. Believe in him. But the Bible also says not just our relationship with God was fractured and broken, but our relationship with each other has also been affected by sin. That's why there's war, there's racism, there's oppression and justice. But the Bible also says not just that, but the third area in which the world has been affected by sin is that the entire created order has been thrown off in the balance because of sin. That's why there's disease and hunger. And here's what the Bible says. At the end, when God finally comes to restore this creation, God isn't going to whisk us and take us from earth to heaven. God isn't just going to say, whoop, and take us. God is not going to leave this material world to whatever. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down into this material world, and I'm going to renew and perfect this material world. 
And in order for that to happen, God says, I need everybody. I don't just need pastors and teachers to preach the God. I need, I need, I need, I need doctors and nurses and educators and social workers and, and janitors and, and people who cut hair and, and Barbers, barbers, people, barbers, and I, I need, I need farmers. Sorry, man. I need farmers. I need, I need moms. I need everybody. I need everybody. Because that's what I'm doing. I am creating and making this world perfect. In order for that to happen, God says, I need everybody to do that. Ray Bakke, let me end with this quote. Ray Bakke says this. It's fascinating to see the diversity of people that God uses by giving us not one, not two, but three books to show us how he did that. How did he restore the nation of Israel? How did he restore Jerusalem? First of all, you have the book of Ezra. And this book is about a minister, as it were, a teacher of the word, because the Jews needed to be reacquainted with the word of God and what the Bible said so that their lives could be shaped by what God has said. But you also have the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a lay person. He's an urban planner and an urban developer. Nehemiah was a layperson who uses management skills to literally rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and therefore to reinstate the stability so that the economic and civil life of Israel could flourish. But lastly, you also have Esther. Ah, Esther. And Esther is not in a congregation or out in the streets. She's up in the king's palace. She's working for justice and a more just social order. And unless all three of those things happened, nothing would have happened. So here's what you have in the Bible. You've got male and female. You've got lay and clergy. And you have people working for spiritual maturity, economic flourishing, and a just social order. Everybody. God is using them all. Why are you in Chicago? Are you here so that you could, you know, build your resume the job that you want, get the wealth experience you need, and whenever you go, you go and you live your life up? Are you here just to feather your own nest? Are you here just to build up your credentials? Why are you here in Chicago? Are you just using the city or are you serving it and loving it for the sake of the kingdom? This morning, uh, as we take communion, here's what I wanted to do. I wanted this morning for us to corporately pray Close your eyes with me. I wanted us to corporately pray this morning. Daddy, you should come on up. I am fully aware that it is by the enabling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that you and I will catch a vision for what God intends for us. And I especially today prayed for those of you who have what you think are just secular jobs, the thing that you do to pay bills, and you have lost the vision. You have been disconnected from this missional vision that what you do is participating in the restoring and putting back together of this world. The ultimate restoration project that God has been on. And you've lost sight of your purpose in life. You've lost sight of your meaning in life. And you're here this morning saying, God, I need a renewed, fresh perspective that where I am and what I am doing matters for the sake of your kingdom. God, I want to pray for the men and women that are here. Men and women representing all spheres of our society, of this city. Men and women that you have created, you've redeemed, you've saved for the mission of God that is before them. God, you have called us to a mission that is larger than ourselves, a cause that is greater than our just own selfish ambition, a cause to participate along with you in putting back together this world for your glory. And Holy Spirit, we need this morning you to come in powerful ways 
And to that brother and to that sister who is in that job and saying, I hate what I do. This pointless, this is pointless. There's nothing good redeeming about what I do. And who's lost sight of the vision, that you would restore that vision, that you would restore that passion, that you would give them anew, God, a fresh perspective that where they are and what they are doing matters for the sake of your kingdom. And I pray for these hundreds of students that might be here today saying, what can I possibly do just as a college student or a grad student? God, that you would give them once again fresh perspective that where they are at this time and this season in their lives is an absolutely critical period that may set the trajectory for the rest of their lives. They will get a hold of the mission that you have for them, God. I pray for the moms and parents in this church that you would once again renew, God, and comfort and encourage their calling and affirm their calling to be the best mom they could possibly be as they raise up future kingdom workers for your kingdom. Let them know that they are precious in your eyes. Christ reigns today as King and as Lord. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is still at work. The tomb is still empty. The church of Jesus Christ is still marching. Holy Spirit still comforts those who seek him. God still answers prayers. Jesus Christ is still Lord. And God's kingdom does not need some stimulus package to bail it out. He is King. He is Lord. I'm going to ask the worship team to just sing this a couple more times. And I'm just going to bless you and give this benediction. Stick around and sing if you like. Walk out in victory that our God reigns. But let's sing this song again and again and again. God, we thank you that you today reign. And you reign as King and as Lord. You are in control. You are sovereign. You are at work. Whenever we don't see it through eyes of our human eyes, give us eyes to faith. Give us eyes of faith to see that your hiddenness is not abandonment and that your silence is not absence. You are there. You are there. You are there. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, all God's people said, all God's people said, have a great week. We'll see you back here next week.